Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Lord, please pour down your Holy Spirit upon us. Bless us with new wine from above. Let us know your presence within us as we hear your word today. Would you be moving within us and transforming us and bringing us new life? Amen. That's quite a a lovely prayer in some ways, asking God to fill us, to hold us, to have us in his hands, to, to make us more than we are with his Holy Spirit. But as I was writing it and as I was thinking about it, I realised that's a really difficult prayer because in practice, that means we're going to go through some rough changes and we're asking God to do a work in every part of our lives. And maybe there's a part of our life that actually we don't want that work to happen in, something we're proud of, something that we've worked towards. It could be your relationships, your hobbies, your finances even. Lord, I've worked hard, I've achieved this. You can have everything, but if you don't touch this, it would be great. Maybe you're not that blunt. I mean, I don't say those exact words to God, but actually there are parts of my life that I'm very quick to say, God, here, have this. And other parts that maybe I've become a little proud of, and I'm sure that many of us can identify with that. Almost all of us that are listening to this today will have at some point lived with somebody else. Um, Maybe that's um, in student halls, maybe you're a young professional living with a group of people, maybe it's a spouse, or maybe you even live at home with your parents or just someone else. I can't even think of a different type of relationship. But at some point, you would have lived with other people. And when you live with other people, most of the spaces that you have are shared. Um, Those are things like the kitchen or the living space, the bathrooms, potentially. Um, If you're married, it would be the bedrooms as well. And normally there'll be a person within that kind of community that takes the lead in decorating that space in kind of making it what it is. And the other person maybe gets less of a say or maybe doesn't care as much. Um, But often they'll try and, and certainly I have, try and make their own little personal space somewhere that's just theirs. Um, If you're a student, the, the real obvious example of this is your bedroom. You know, you share all these other spaces, but you can do whatever you want with your bedroom because it's yours. And it doesn't matter what other people think of it. Other people don't have a say over it. Um, Some people might have a study to work in that they've kind of decorated in their own way. And one or two people I know have their own kind of fully kitted out man caves that are just completely differently decorated to the rest of the house and to the kind of whole vibe. You go into it and it's so different. It's definitely theirs. In my own home, I've managed to acquire a single drawer that I have dominion over. If you identify with that, then this parable is going to make sense to you. You might even see parallels with what can often happen in our relationship with God. This week, we begin our summer series on the parables of Jesus, looking primarily at the book of Matthew. And frankly, it's going to be a great series. And we're really going to look at some of the real core teachings that Jesus gives us that we can apply to our everyday lives. We're going to see in this parable that Jesus is not someone who comes to transform one room of our house. He's come to rebuild the building. 
And we're going to see that the resistance he faced during his human lifetime is the same resistance that he faces both in our hearts and the world today. The Pharisees of the time knew that Jesus was different. He challenged them and everything that they believed. The religion that they had developed on top of what God had given them was completely different to what Jesus had preached. His teaching was so transformational that they kind of repelled it like a magnet. They hated it. Jesus was radical for his day. He was new. And as humans, we don't do new very well. When Jesus showed up, he didn't fit in their box. And when he shows up in your life, he's not going to fit in yours. So you have a choice. You either get a new box or you say no to Jesus. And the Pharisees, they decided they didn't want a new box. So they said, go, no, Jesus, this is not for us. They plotted and they planned and they took every opportunity to try and harm Jesus's reputation or see him killed. And sometimes I think as Christians, we can slip into some of those behaviours, maybe not as obviously, maybe not as intentionally, but we actually think we've got things figured out. And so we don't want to hear something new, something different, something transformational. And when we do that, when we take that attitude of enjoying our box and being happy within it, we miss out on the incredible gift that Jesus is offering. We're going to look at that gift, the gift of new wine, um, in Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17. Um, so yeah, read along with me and um, I'll read it out for us. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. It seems like it's a simple parable, uh, maybe not completely relevant to us, about cloth and wineskins. But it's actually the interaction itself that's really interesting. It's a challenge from Jesus to the Pharisees about fasting. Now, it's really easy to go fasting, that's interesting. But actually the issue doesn't seem like it's really fasting at all. Jesus's entire life is an issue for the Pharisees. Fasting was simply the issue that they had in front of them that they could pick on and question and try and undermine Jesus about. The Pharisees taught that a religious person, a righteous person, should fast two days a week. For them, it was Mondays and it was Thursdays. And they would love to show it off. They would walk around, go to the temple looking distraught with hungry faces that kind of feed me, sir, but I won't accept it because I'm holier than you. They wanted people to know that they fasted because they loved God. It was religious and it was important to them. Jesus's lack of fasting was a rebuke to that. So here they come to him and they ask, why are you not fasting? Why do you let your disciples eat whatever they want? And he gives a, a slightly strange answer with a reference to a bridegroom at the wedding. So we can ask the question, who is this bridegroom? Well, Jesus here and in some of his other parables and teaching throughout the Bible and then the letters of Paul as well, is presented himself as the bridegroom. So if Jesus is the bridegroom, then when he's dis with his disciples, they can't fast 
because they're celebrating. They're at a wedding. His entire kind of ministry is a wedding between Jesus and his people. In this example, it's the disciples. But with us today, it's God. They're at a celebration. He tells them that there will be a day when he's not there and then they'll fast. So Jesus isn't saying not to fast like the Pharisees seem to kind of be trying to trick him into saying. In fact, he was teaching us to fast when he had gone, when he had returned to the Father, but before his return to earth. The issue isn't fasting. It's the fact that Jesus was different. Jesus was new. He's teaching a different message to the Pharisees. He is the new wine that he describes in the parable. You may know that um, Jesus, um, when he was kind of conducting his first miracle, that miracle was to turn water into wine. It's a theme of his ministry. And that water to wine isn't a neat party trick, as helpful as it would have been. It was a message and quite a clear one. So what was different about that wine in that first miracle? Well, when the master of ceremonies at the wedding drank it, he proclaimed it as the best wine. That's something that shouldn't have happened at the end of a wedding. You bring out the cheap stuff when people are too drunk to notice. And so Jesus is saying the thing that has come before is less than the thing that has arrived. Or to put it another way, the new wine is here. Jesus has come, and what has come before the teaching of the Pharisees is the old wine. It's lesser, and he is superior. So why are we afraid of it? Why were the Pharisees fighting it? Why would any of us today ignore or refuse the new wine that Jesus offers? Well, I think from my experiences and just thinking about this issue, I think there's two kind of things that come into play when we think about transformation. We think about this offer that Jesus is giving us. And one is change. We hate change. We don't like the new. We struggle with it. You may believe that you're a really open person, but I can sure you can think of times when you struggled with change. In the 1980s, a huge calamity was occurring. The Coca-Cola company was losing market share to PepsiCo, and they couldn't understand why. Coca-Cola was this massive brand that had existed for decades upon decades upon decades. They had that brand awareness, but they had also were good businessmen and they purchased all the best slots in supermarkets and shops so that when you went into a store, the first thing you see was Coke and Pepsi was at the bottom. And yet Pepsi was taking their market share. Um, you know, this is the Coke you recognize. It's what they called Coca-Cola Classic. It has the very traditional logo. And in the 1980s, like I said, it was becoming less and less popular. So they spent an absolute fortune and came up with a new formula. They did blind taste tests with over 250,000 people across Europe and the US. And in every taste test, new Coke, which they had created, was preferred over both Pepsi, which had been beating the original Coke, and the original Coke. People loved the taste of new Coke. So they decided, let's go for it. This is really successful. Everyone loves New Coke. So on the 23rd of April in 1985, they introduced New Coke with this snazzy design. They got rid of the cola and just wrote Coke on it. it says the word new. It's easy. New Coke. Better Coke. That's the, the vision that they had kind of tried to portray to everyone. Step into the future with New Coke. It lasted just three months. It was one of the biggest business failures in history. In fact, it's 
considered so bad within the Coca-Cola company that in the years after they launched New Coke, they tried to retrieve all the bottles and cans and merchandise with it in, and they buried millions of, well, thousands of tons of um, this merchandise in these bottles. Somewhere out there are millions of items with New Coke on them. It's actually exceedingly expensive to try and find some of this stuff that kind of people had bought at the time. And people really responded very badly to New Coke. And I thought I'd read some of the things that people wrote to the Coca-Cola company about New Coke at the time. One woman wrote, at first I was shocked, then I turned numb, and then I began to scream. Another person said, changing Coke is like God making the grass purple. One man complained, when they took Coke off the market, that's old Coke, they violated my freedom of choice. And my favourite one um, from someone who I just can't imagine how they wrote these words, they said this, there's only two things in my life that really matter, God and Coca-Cola, and you have taken away one of those things. This response was overwhelming and it was overwhelmingly negative. And do you know why it failed? Well, Coca-Cola, after spending a fortune to launch something that they believed was better, that they had researched and found was better, well, they did all the research to find out why people didn't like it. And it was very simple, it wasn't the taste. They kept doing blind taste tests for years afterwards and people always preferred new Coke. But the reason they hated it is because it was new. People had become attached to that idea of Coca-Cola, the red can, the brand, that experience. People don't do well with new. We like old, we like what we like. Church people are often the worst. Um, I heard a story recently about a church, First Baptist in Houston, that introduced a new instrument into worship. And this was many years ago. It lasted one week. When the church leaders went to use it the next week, it was gone. A little later, they found it in a river nearby. So you're imagining right now drums. I think that's the first thing that I would throw out, um, even though I love them most of the time. Or maybe it's a guitar. You don't like the guitar, you'd throw that out. Um, or maybe someone had slipped in a tambourine and it was just outrageous. No, you're not even close. I wasn't even close when I heard this story. What this person had found so radical and been so disgusted by was an organ, an old fashioned traditional organ. It was so against what they had been used to that they stole it after one service. At the time, that was revolutionary. It was radical. What we do in our services nowadays could be called contemporary, but the truth is in five, 10 and 20 years from now, it will become traditional. Do you realize that? All of us have our traditions, the way that we like to do things. In the last few months, actually, I felt a lot like the man who stole the organ. The switch to online services because of coronavirus has revealed that actually I can be a bit of a Pharisee. I don't enjoy online services and at first I struggled to kind of bring myself to watch, to accept. I've longed to go back to how things were and many of those things were really good. But the truth is we can't. Even as churches reopen, we find that what we go back to is not what we remember and may have felt comfortable with. Our traditions and our circumstances forced a change. This environment that we're in is being renewed and changed and what we enter into is something different. So that's change. That's kind of one aspect of why people respond negatively to this idea of transformation and may reject God. But then there's also the fear of the unknown. 
which is similar but different to change. Lord, when you cry out, Lord, change me, Lord, give me your new wine, then you don't know what he's going to do. What will happen? Where will Jesus lead you? The Pharisees didn't know where this new religion would lead. In 1882, a man called Michael Kohler invented the clawfoot bathtub. Until this point, bathtubs had been made of wood or tin, and they were placed directly on the floor in the kitchen. This new tub had two differences. Well, three, really. It was meant to be permanent. But the main difference is it was raised up from the floor and that it was covered in enamel. People were horrified. They hated it. The media, within a few days, had begun to describe it as a dangerous vanity. Cities were so concerned about this change to hygiene that they created bathtub taxes and banned them in some cases. People were afraid because it was unknown. They didn't understand. But within 20 years, that bathtub design had spread across the world. The raised feet meant they could dispose of wastewater easily and safely. The enamel meant the tub could be easily cleaned. And it was part of a sanitization revolution that saved countless lives and improved the health of many. Throughout history, there is story after story of people who won't accept the unknown. But the truth is it's inevitable and lives can be transformed. So what if the unknown of this new wine for both the Pharisees and us today is the greatest change that you could ever experience? Well, that is what Jesus came to show us. It's what he shows us in this parable. And in this parable, there are three parts. There's a new patch, new wine and old wineskins. So we'll dive into each of those. The first, Jesus says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk or new cloth on an old garment. He says it will rip, making the tear worse. Most of us um, don't make our own clothes anymore and we live in a society where, frankly, we bin too much. But actually, it's quite a simple image. When cloth is washed, it shrinks. So if you have an old piece of clothing, like a shirt or a pair of trousers, then over time it will have shrunk by being washed. And if you then patch it with a brand new piece of cloth, then the next time you wash it, that new cloth shrinks, tearing the shirt where you've sewn it, making a much bigger hole. And Jesus here is saying that he did not come to be a patch in our lives. He did not come to paper over a hole. He did not come to be a patch. He didn't want to be a patch on the Pharisees' religion. He doesn't want to simply be one of your hobbies or kind of an extension to your house. He wants to be your entire life. He wants all of you. He wants your wholehearted transformation. Jesus doesn't patch, he transforms. So just as no one would use new patches on old cloth, no one can take the word of God and try and make it fit upon their old life. You couldn't partner God with something that itself was old and resistant and inflexible. So then Jesus talks about new wine. And what's the deal with new wine? Well, we create wine a little bit differently to how um, people in Jewish society would have um, kind of bottled and kept wine. When they took kind of the grape juice, they would have fermented it in the wineskins. Um, and as it ferments, it expands. So the wine is going to kind of change whatever container it's in. It's going through kind of a process, um, which is really important and kind of creates that kind of wine that we might be more familiar with today. So Jesus here kind of comes in and says, well, 
I'm the new wine and I'm going to change, change lives. And the story of the gospel kind of confirms that, that actually when Jesus enters into someone's life, it radically alters in so many different ways. So Jesus is not here to fit in our lives, but to transform them. Just as new wine, when you put it in a container, will transform that container. Jesus was saying he's here to change things. Do you know how he changes things? He changes everything. Um, I realised the other day that Jesus kind of ruined every funeral that he went to. Kind of, he'd get told someone was dead and he'd kind of go, what do you mean? And that dead person seems to just get up and walk away. God, Jesus is the God of change, life-changing, transforming change. Isaiah 43 puts it like this. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Complete transformation. And Corinthians 5.17 puts it more like this. Therefore, if anyone, any one of us, anyone of anyone listening is in Christ, the new creation has come. That's the new wine into the new wineskins. The old is gone. The new is here. And Jesus wants to transform everything. He wants to change us. He wants to be that new wine in the parable. But the final bit of the parable mentions old wineskins. And, you know, so I said we want new wines in new wineskins. Well, what's the problem with old wineskins then? What does Jesus warn against? Well, it's not specifically that they're old. It's that over time, as they've been used, as they become kind of used to the old wine, they've become rigid and brittle and set in their ways. I was searching all our cupboards and I couldn't find any animal leather wineskins. And I was quite disappointed, but I did discover a phenomenal number of bags for life. Some we had used a lot and some that were brand new. So I've got with me this very old Tesco bag for life that we've probably used hundreds of times. I've got to admit I did rip it to make it look a little bit worse than it actually is. And when I try and use it for the function that it's meant for, the item comes straight out of the bag. But when I grab a new bag, or, you know, a new wineskin, and I put the item that I'm wanting to hold in it, the bag does its job. And maybe it stretches, maybe it moves, but it completes the task that it was created for. It exists to cope with the change. The truth is you don't have to be old to be set in your ways. Old wineskins is not chronological reference, but a reference to attitude. If you're set in your ways doing the same things over and over again, and you're not letting God transform that, interact with that part of your life, then you are an old wineskin. You're an old Tesco bag. Why would God pour his new wine, his gracious gift, into someone who is not willing to change with it, who is not willing to live it to the full? So a question is, are you willing to say, God, change any part of your, my life? As I prayed at the beginning, God, pour out your new wine in us and for us. Lord, change every part of my life. There's actually an extra part of the parable that isn't found in the Matthew version, but is found in the Luke version. And it says, no one after drinking old wine wants the new. They say the old is good. But why did Jesus add that bit? He's just taught us that he's new wine and that we need to be new wineskins. So why does he tell us that the old is good? Well, the truth is the old can be good, but only until you taste the new wine. Once you taste the new wine, you'll never go back to the old. You'll realise that the old is bitter. The old is substandard. It is inferior. And what is on offer is something incredible.
You may think your life is good. Maybe it is, maybe you're doing fine, but couldn't it be so much better? Have you tried the new wine? Have you experienced what God can do in your life? Because once God comes into your life, once Jesus gives us his new wine, his spirit, the only way to live is to go with it and to change. You're not gonna say, I wanna go back. The final kind of image is this orange. How do I know that it's good, that it's sweet? Well, I was taught that oranges should be smooth, they should be a bit firm, and they should get heavier as they ripen. And so whenever I buy oranges, I kind of have a couple all the time, and I try and follow that rule, waiting until the orange gets a little bit heavier and feels ready. But I've eaten some terrible oranges. They feel smooth and heavy, but turn out to be underripe and bitter. Or I've waited so long for the perfect orange that it ends up past its best. It's sad. There's only one way to tell if this orange is sweet. It's to taste it. The Psalms say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What I'm saying to you this morning is that if you haven't tasted the new wine, how can you know it's good? You will think your current life, your old wine, your old experiences is good until you taste the new life on offer. I promise you that if you say, Lord, I want the new wine that Jesus will fill you. He taught in the kind of Beatitudes, blessed are the hungry and the thirsty for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It is a promise from God that if we reach out to him, he will fill us and be with us. He will give us that new wine. And today that can be you. You need to be ready. You need to take that step. You need to kind of pray it with confidence because the prayer and the response that will come will change everything. And that is a great thing. Um, So why don't we pray to finish? Jesus, I'm ready to receive your reign. I'm ready for the new wine that you are offering. Would you fill me to overflowing? Would you transform who I am? Would you be with us? We pray in your holy name. Amen. Excellent. Thank you, Stephen, for that uh, fantastic uh, word. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I found that really, um, really helpful, really encouraging. Uh, and I feel like God was really speaking to me through that. So I hope, hope you guys really engage with that. Uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to spend a few minutes uh, reflecting on the gospel uh, and, and uh, who, who Jesus is. And, and I want to ask you a question as, as, as we do that. Um, I wonder if you feel like God is close to you. Do you feel like God is close to you? When we look at the Bible, we see that God is a God who created everything, the whole universe, that everything that is not God was created by God. And maybe to you that sounds uh, like a, a God who's hard to relate to, a God who is maybe distant. It's God who created everything. Who am I next to this God who created the universe? Would you know what? The Bible also says that God is a God of relationship because it describes how God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is in this perfect relationship, this community uh, of three persons uh, and yet one God. And what we see from this is that our God, this God who created everything, this God who created you and me and everything we see around us, this is a God who loves relationship. And 
what I want to say to you this morning is uh, whatever you think about God, whatever your experience of church and Christianity, uh, I want to say to you this morning that actually God created you to join that relationship, to join that relationship that God himself has been enjoying for eternity. God created you to join in that relationship. I wonder, do you feel worthy to be in relationship with this God who created the universe, this God who created everything? Do you feel worthy to join in that relationship? Because so often we know that we do things that would not please God, right? You may call yourself a Christian, you may not, but I'm sure uh, whether or not you do, you feel actually, if there is a God who created everything, if there is a God of the universe, he wouldn't want a relationship with me. I'm not worthy to be in fellowship with him. We know it, don't we? Because we reject God. Even those of us who are believers, we do things that we regret, that we know that God wouldn't like. By our actions, we're not worthy, are we, for this relationship? And yet, the good news of the gospel is that we can be made worthy. We can be made worthy to have this relationship. And, and this is really one of the things that Jesus came to accomplish. Jesus Christ when he came to earth, when he, uh, when he told us uh, who he was and he taught uh, and he did all those good things, what Jesus did, which was much more important than his teaching, was he died on a cross. He was killed on a cross. And this wasn't uh, just kind of a terrible uh, mistake. This was actually God's plan because by Jesus' death on the cross, by God himself dying, Uh, living a perfect life as a human person, but also as God dying on a cross. What he accomplished was that he paid the price uh, for yours and my sins. All those times that we rejected God, that we didn't follow God, all those things that we've done that make us feel unworthy, Jesus Christ has paid the price for those things. And so what Jesus offered to you is, hey, if you believe in me, if you give your life to me, If you decide to follow me, then I will make you worthy. You can have this relationship. And so if you're a believer this morning, I just want to encourage you that actually God is a God of relationship. He is not distant. He is with you. In God, you have a father. In Jesus, you have a friend and a king. In the Holy Spirit, you have God dwelling in you. God made you to be in relationship with him. If you're not a believer here this morning, I want to tell you, I don't know what your experience of life or Christianity has been, but actually God made you to be in relationship with him. Supernatural creator of the universe. He made you for a purpose. You're here uh, to glorify him and to be in relationship with him. So I want to encourage you, if you're not a believer this morning, well, uh, you know, we have an alpha course, which is coming to the end, but we'll run another one soon. And perhaps at the end, when Andy's email address comes up, you might want to drop Andy a message. If you're not a believer, if you want to hear more about this Christianity. And if you are, we just encourage you, God wants your relationship. God wants your fellowship because in Jesus, you are made worthy. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to have another time of worship now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have done what we could never do. By our actions, Jesus, we could never be made worthy for relationship with God, creator of the universe. And we all know that in our hearts. We know that we can never make ourselves worthy by what we do. It just doesn't make sense, God. And yet in you, Jesus, 
in you through your mercy, through your grace, through your death on the cross. You pay the price for all those times we've rejected God. And you give us the opportunity uh, to come into that relationship, Jesus, rightly and justly because of the uh, punishment that you've suffered, Jesus, on our behalf. And so I just pray for us, Lord God, that we would step into that. We would embrace that relationship. That those who are umming and ahhing, is this true, is this not? Uh, God, I pray for those people that you would give them faith. And I pray for us who have already chosen that we want to give our lives to you, Jesus. I pray that you would increase our faith further and we would step into that relationship more fully, Lord Jesus. Be with us as we worship now. We love you, Lord. Amen.